Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Climate Brief, a podcast on climate news in the region stretching from Eastern Europe to Russia, down to the Caucasus and Central Asia. The podcast is being produced by Natalie Sauer, a Paris-based environmental journalist, Boris Schneider, Berlin-based climate journalist, and myself, Angelina Davidova, Berlin-based climate journalist. We're bringing to you this bonus episode which has a topic of renewable energy development in the Eurasian region, following the report which was produced by the organization called RAN21, which follows the development of renewable energy worldwide, and United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. And in order to get the latest analysis about what has been happening in the region, we speak to Executive Director of RAN21, Rene Adip, And so I asked Rana about what has been happening in the area of renewable energy development in this vast region stretching from southeastern Europe to Central Asia. Because we know many countries of the region cannot really boast very ambitious renewable energy targets and renewable energy investment projects and plans. And it was actually surprising what Rana had to tell us. So I guess there, are, as you rightly said, there is a diversity of realities in this region. I think there is a, there are some commonalities. Um, when we're looking into where the energy infrastructure comes from, there is really a historic development of the infrastructure, which means, for instance, uh, that there is almost a, there is basically 100% electricity supply in all countries. It also means that it is building uh, very much around fossil fuel, historically uh, for some countries also nuclear. And um, there is a good basis energy supply, I guess, electricity supply. However, what we also observe in all countries here is that either in the countries or in some regions of the countries, um, there is energy poverty and not 100% energy supply, basically, in terms of good quality of supply of energy services. Um, this is true for electricity, but it's also true in particular when we're looking, for instance, into the heating and cooling because traditional biomass is still very predominant. So these are commonalities. And when we speak more specifically about renewable energy development, I mean, would you say there are any good stories? There are any forerunners who did really well in the last few years? So indeed, I think there is, a, and that's maybe another another commonality to some extent uh, that also explains why we have uh, front runners in the region. Um, the region is kind of, um, a, I, I guess, like a, in a microcosm, we see what we see uh, globally. Um, in the countries we looked at, so um, 18 countries, um, we see that there are some fossil fuel producers. And that most of the countries are highly dependent basically on the imports of fossil fuel into their countries. We even have countries where four countries, Armenia, Belarus, Georgia, and Moldova, that are dependent on 70% of the energy supply depends on fossil fuel imports. This means really that historically, I guess, like why has renewable energy been been developed during the last years and moved uh, into the Uh, political attention, I guess, is really for, for energy security reasons and energy sovereignty reasons, uh, whether it is uh, the independence of, uh, of imports, the diversification of fuel sources, because we have um, 
Many countries then highly depend on hydropower, for instance, um, and um, the production of hydropower has reduced because of climate change. So there is really the need for diversification. But then very clearly also, um, as I mentioned before, the stable energy supply everywhere in the countries, also in more remote areas, is uh, very much at the forefront. So this energy security topic has obviously been uh, a key driver, for instance, in Ukraine. And uh, this also explains why Ukraine um, has actually been a leading country in terms of wind um, and solar photovoltaics developments. So when we're looking at the countries we looked into, um, we have basically three leading countries, which are Ukraine, um, Kazakhstan and, um, and the Russian Federation. And um, interestingly, we see that the drivers here are a bit different. So for Ukraine, it's really the energy security and sovereignty topic. Um, for the Russian Federation, very much um, the need for diversification, but also building up basically industrial supply chains, economic activities, and uh, advancing the technology sovereignty. And for Kazakhstan, um, it has really been, I guess, like a political momentum around um, the UNECE, Renchinhuan, DENA, coming together, organizing a hard talk that really brought uh, different players together uh, from the government side industry, NGOs, um, where there was clearly an understanding there is an opportunity around renewable energy. And uh, the Kazakhstan government has really put in place uh, some very favorable um, policy and regulatory frameworks with a clear roadmap to develop renewable energy. Well, that's good to hear. And um, as we see in this list, I mean, there's both Ukraine and Russia in this list. And um, I mean, do you follow at all what's happening with Ukrainian renewable energy infrastructure now in, in conditions of the war? Mm -hmm. So, yes, this was also one of the reasons why we uh, we delayed to some extent um, the publication also of the report, because um, it is about having a very good sense about um what the reality really is and data. And indeed, we see that uh, Russia's invasion in Ukraine obviously had an impact on the uh, renewable energy infrastructure. So 90% of Ukraine's wind power capacity and 30% of the solar power capacity uh, have been affected in this conflict. And this is actually uh, really impactful for the overall region we looked at because it uh, it represents basically around a quarter of the total wind capacity and a fifth of the solar capacity in the region we have uh, we have basically analyzed. What is interesting, however, about this is because of the decentralized nature of um, the renewable energy capacities, we see that um, the generation capacities are not fully destructed, so to say, but only partially, which means that when we project this in a post-conflict um, view, there is the likelihood of making it operational much more quickly is quite high because uh, there is still capacity that can be used. And I think this is, uh, for instance, an unexpected outcome of this report that uh, renewable energy has clearly a climate resilience, um, etc., but has also a resilience uh, when we think about the decentralized nature in terms of energy security. Um, thank you for this. And um, now we turn into Russia. Once again, in current conditions of an ongoing conflict and also uh, connected economic sanctions, 
Uh, how do you see the prospects of renewable energy development in Russia in current conditions? Also with regard to the issues of getting access to international green finance and clean technologies. So uh, like what's your perception of the situation is? So to be honest, this is really nothing we have uh, specifically explored in the report. Um, what is very clear, I think, is when we are looking at the key drivers for renewable energy development in the Russian Federation, it's uh, indeed Russia is uh, in, in the region basically one of the highest emitters, uh, which means that carbon finance uh, went into uh, renewable energy development uh, in Russia. And this basically depends on the geopolitical uh, situation and agreements with other countries. So um, I think that is clearly affected, currently affected. What we see, however, I think uh, Russia had really, one of the goals was really to also build up uh, supply chains, manufacturing capacities to really ensure technology sovereignty here. And this is something which is more an industrial policy part, which is driven by the government than um, depending basically on bilateral, multilateral agreements. So um, what does this mean for Russian renewable energy development? Um, to be honest, we don't have really the insights on where things stand with regard to this. The potential is huge. Um, the necessity for re developing renewable energy is also very important because with the size of the country and the density, basically, of the population in some areas, renewable energy is the least cost solution uh, to provide electricity, is also the least cost solution uh, for providing, basically, a sustainable heating uh, to the households. But uh, obviously... Um, it depends on the government's attention. Right. And um, building up on that and also looking at the uh, larger picture in the region, um, quite a number of countries have also introduced domestic limitations on buying Russian oil and gas and um, also including some countries of our region. And I wonder if you think that um, going away from Russian oil and gas and coal uh, will have an impact on renewable energy development in other countries of the region. I would say like, um, and again, it's it's nothing we have specifically explored in this report, but the reality is um, since we see, I, I guess like when we're looking at the countries, we see uh, that there are, even before the current situation, energy security was already at the forefront uh, because there is such a high dependence on fossil fuel imports. And um, this is in particular important because uh, the high dependence on fossil fuel imports is a sovereignty question, but also uh, there is a major risk because fossil fuel prices are fluctuating. And in the current economic um, situation, you see this started uh, last year, this obviously is a major burden on the many countries' economies. So I would say that the current situation has rather accentuated this awareness and put at the forefront how important it is to diversify the fuel sources. So in general, and this is regardless whether the fuel sources come, obviously there is a, an increased pressure because much of the fossil fuel comes from the Russian Federation, but it's in general the dependence on few fossil fuel exporting countries uh, in the region that uh, clearly shows how important it is to diversify. This is one part. The other part is, and I think this is not only happening in the region, but globally, a much deeper understanding 
how important energy is for our economic activities and for our societal activities. So many countries are facing an increased pressure on energy poverty. Uh, there is a risk on the economic uh, situation and economic activities. And um, as a result, certainly um, an increased awareness to basically build renewable energy capacities, invest in energy efficiency and, um, and saving. Now, when you look at policy measures which have been implemented in uh, various countries of the regions, which ones were you say were the most successful and which are the ones that the countries have not introduced yet, but which could be a good idea for the region? And that's a really interesting question because what we see is from the 18 countries we looked at, um, there is um, there are 15 countries that have a renewable energy target. So, which is already good. So, there is an ambition, renewable energy engagement there. And there are four countries uh, that have a net zero emission target or a carbon neutrality target. So, we also see, and this is obviously the case for the largest emitters like Russia, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan. So, there is clearly also this international engagement, which is there. Now, a target is obviously not enough to move forward. And I think um, this is something where, where we clearly see there is a lot of space for improvement. So what are the good stories? I think the good stories are in terms of renewable electricity. Uh, we have some countries that clearly have basically uh, feed-in tariffs uh, are very common. We see an increasing development of auctions or tenders, which have uh, a clear advantage basically um, in terms of possibility to have uh, lowest lowest prices basically for the electricity so but also accelerating a large-scale renewable energy development so um, this is something where we see a trend when we compare it to the 2018 report which we had produced uh, there is more auctions um, happening interestingly what we also see that um, that um, there is net metering basically um being introduced. And I think what is really important here is this is something which really fosters um, decentralized uh, renewable energy capacities. So uh, rooftop solar, it allows basically for increasing also citizens' uh, support uh, to renewable energy development because they have directly an economic benefit. So this is something which is in place. Now, admittedly, we see that the policies are in place, but um, the implementation is not always uh, happening in a good and easy and smooth way. So there is still uh, lots of delays when it comes to implementation. Another part that is also clearly um, to be improved, I guess, if we want to accelerate developments, is to have very strong roadmap that are guiding with short-term, medium-term, longer-term views, um, strong planning, um, zoning, permitting processes, etc. There is one aspect which I think is really interesting uh, in the region. We see that um, the calm border adjustment mechanism of the Euro uh, European Union is another key driver coming from the policy side, basically, um, for the regions. Why we have like a carbon footprint uh, standard that is basically imposed uh, for any uh, goods that are being imported uh, to the European Union. And in particular, um, for Eastern Europe, uh, Southeast Europe, Caucasus, 
We see that um, the governments are really engaging here into efficiency and renewables to basically improve the foot, the carbon footprint uh, of their goods and secure the export markets. And I think this is a development which is really interesting because it showed that renewable energy is not only about the energy policies and the right market conditions, but we see that um, it can be influenced very heavily and should be strategically influenced more by uh, industrial policies and trade policies. Right. Thank you. And um, it was quite surprising to hear that um, Kazakhstan was also actually one of the success stories because Kazakhstan is also mm-hmm. obviously a large producer of fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. So um, what mm-hmm. do you say uh, the main driver for development of renewable energy in Kazakhstan um, were also mainly energy security issues? And um, also connected question with that, do you think what Kazakhstan is doing uh, will have an impact on other Central Asian countries? I think energy security in Kazakhstan is not uh, is not the same topic as for countries that are dependent on fossil fuel imports. Um, but here it is really so Kazakhstan is one of the highest emitters uh, in the region. So um, and has a carbon neutrality target, a net zero target. Um, and it's your emission targets. And um, there is clearly uh, one aspect to this. The other aspect is that also in Kazakhstan, when you're going into some um, some more remote areas, the population is facing anti-poverty. It's not about uh, because you basically have like the production capacities is uh, centralized and um, far away from some region. So this is another aspect to it. And um, then very clearly, as I as I mentioned before, um, sometimes it's also about having the right players around the table and creating a momentum around this. So there has been clearly uh, political attention to this topic, anti-saving, efficiency, uh, renewable energy, uh, very much also with some political uh, regional players like the UNEC. And um, as a result, uh, so it, it's indeed mentioned. So we started... Uh, to work with uh, players. There was a hard talk that has also kicked off this understanding that renewable energy can also, for fossil fuel exporting countries, contribute and bring a benefit to the economies and societies. So, um, yes, indeed, I think the reality is when you have like uh, some leading countries that show that it's possible to do it and that there are drivers and that there is a benefit to it, this is something which uh, which does have an impact because there is also, it's very clear that there is also the need for regional collaboration. So when we're thinking about supply chains, for instance, obviously uh, there is a need to build up to some extent and maybe it's partially manufacturing, but uh, some domestic and regional supply chains. When we're looking into um, electricity infrastructure, so grid infrastructure, there is a need or let's say a good regional collaboration clearly facilitates um, the development of high shares of variable renewable electricity in the grids, so solar, PV and wind. I think there is uh, maybe also to speak about the challenging part in all countries is there has been very much a focus on electricity and the sector like heating and cooling, so in industry and uh, in buildings, as well as transportation have been rather disregarded um, so far, even though they uh, they basically represent approximately 80% of the energy demand, basically, of the countries. So this is, again, uh, one of the areas where there is uh, very clearly more, more ambition and more exploration of the right policy and regulated framework that need to take place. It's a bit sad that we have to dedicate so much of our 
time today to uh, quite a number of wars and military conflicts in the region. Uh, but apart from the Russia's war in Ukraine, there's also um, a conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan and Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. And I was wondering if that also has an impact. Uh, or is it something you've looked into or was it already outside of the scope of your interest? No, we didn't uh, we, we didn't look into because uh, the report basically um, was published now before the recent uh, developments. Um, however, and I think this is basically the... So I, I guess like one thing which is really interesting about this, um, conflicts also show to some extent, and we, we, we see it like, uh, this renewable energy does offer not only an alternative fuel, I guess, but very clearly, uh, it's about another type of energy system that is more decentralized. Uh, it's, uh, also offering other economic opportunities. And it's offering another governance um, system too. So less dependence on few players, whether it is few large fossil fuel companies um, or countries. And um, this is clearly something where we we see, and, and this is more globally, but I think uh, important to also integrate when we're looking into, into um, conflict areas, I guess. Um, this part that energy is at the heart of any of our activities. And um, the mobilization, for instance, of, um, of citizens of cities as new energy players who can now invest in their own generation capacities um, is something which is really important and uh, interesting. And we see, for instance, uh, that there is um, clearly some some countries, for instance, um, and I think in, in, in Kazakhstan, this was also the case, uh, for example, as cities really moving into renewable energy too, because of the air pollution um, situation. This was all the case in, in many Eastern European countries. And that is something which is a reality beyond conflict. So we also see that um, citizens and cities' voices, civil society voices are very, very important in accelerating renewable development. Thank you very much to Rana Adip for joining us on the podcast. Now, the six Western Balkan countries are struggling to embrace the European Union plan on green energy. Albania produces almost all its electricity from hydropower plants. But at what cost to the environment? We sent our reporter Arlis Alkai to investigate. The construction of hydroelectric plants in the Librasht area is destroying the ecosystem of the Shebenik Yablanica National Park. The plants have also dried up a branch of Shkumbini River, leaving residents of nearby villages with no source of clean water. In many places, local communities have resorted to patrols and vigils in order to keep construction companies away from assessing rivers. Some of the country's hydroelectric power plants have been established without thought for environment and in protected areas. Most of the time they are owned by private businesses and well-connected individuals who are making major profits. Albania's environmental problems stem from it never having been placed on the agenda of party elites or high-profile authorities. Ahmed Mehmeti, an environmental expert from the Albanian Ecological Club, explained the reason behind this. 
The transition towards renewable energy is very slow in Albania, and from different reports, Albania is perceived as unfriendly for investments in renewable energy projects, with an unsatisfactory level of local community engagement. Poor local community engagement has led to a significant number of projects which were subject to disputes and faced severe problems in project implementation and were abandoned. The community's interest and public participation in decision-making processes are all but being neglected, as highlighted by the local communities protesting against the construction of the small hydroelectric plants. The EU delegation in Albania says there should be more transparent procedures when granting permits. Albania's focus should move to developing a source of clean and sustainable bioenergy using materials such as wood, wool, clay, lime and straw. The country doesn't have wind turbines, as like in Kosovo, they are not a technology currently being used. There are talks about solar parks being built in the future, but no ground has been broken yet. A report from the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe also found that training, education and technical knowledge in renewable energy are lacking in Albania. It suggested that there needs to be more investment in order to develop the country's green energy future. Recently, fuel prices in Albania have skyrocketed and are now the highest in the region. Public transport costs have been doubled, whilst the average citizen lives on just $5 per day. This has led to protests erupting in the past months across Albanian cities and towns, but the government under Prime Minister Edirama claims that the situation is out of their hands, blaming the war in Ukraine. As a solution to the crisis, he said the government has a plan to invest in even more solar power and hydropower plants. Our vision is a green future and we should turn our eyes to our hydrology capacity. Albania is a rich country according to water amount with eight rivers and three lakes. The total amount of water is 41,700 million cubic meters per year, from which 65% comes from inside the country and 30% from underground waters. But a lot of people, like the farmers in Libraj, think differently. Hydroelectricity is supposed to be part of the solution for the environment but it has become part of the problem in Albania. That's it for today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review and share the episode on social media. Our podcast is supported by Anne Ost, a Berlin-based NGO backing cross-border journalism, also the Moscow Times and the European Climate Foundation. A big thank you to all our three partners for making our work possible. We'd love to know your thoughts on the topics we discuss in each episode. Get in touch on Twitter where you'll find us at Eurasian Climate. If you can, please also support our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Eurasian Climate. And we'll be back soon with a new episode. The COP27, the new UN Climate Conference, is coming soon. Some of us will be traveling to Sharm el-Sheikh 
to cover the conference from the spot. So uh, stay in touch and uh, we'll speak again soon. Thank you for being with us.